Chapter 11. Magnificent Marriage. Somewhere between Frank's coming and going, we've managed to build a marriage. Ours would be the perfect marriage. During our engagement, we had discussed the ministry, in-laws and children. There would be four. We had them all fitting a neat pattern. We entered into marriage intending to fulfill all the covenant the Salvation Army asked us to sign. The wedding service began with the officiating officer reading these articles of marriage from the Salvation Army Book of Ceremonies, 1934. A. We do solemnly declare that we have not sought this marriage for the sake of our own happiness and interests only, although we hope that these would be furthered thereby. But because we believe that the union will enable us the better to please God and more earnestly and successfully fight and work in the army. B. We hereby promise that we will not allow our marriage in any way to lessen our devotion to God, our affection for our comrades, or our faithfulness to the army. C. We promise, whether together or apart, always to do our utmost as true soldiers of Jesus Christ to carry on and sustain the war. D. We promise that we will use all our influence with each other to promote our constant and entire self-sacrifice in fighting in the ranks of the Salvation Army for the salvation of the world. To all of this, we said a loud Amen, and we have never withdrawn that commitment, except we were finally called to see it outworked in the Assemblies of God, not the Salvation Army. To have and to hold from this time forward for richer, for poorer, We could only be richer for we had nothing of this world's goods to lose. I can still hear the sound of those three pences Frank used to play the taxi driver as we set out on our honeymoon. Ten hours later, I made a discovery. The man I'd married was good at getting his own way. Before I had time to get up the stairs, he scrambled into bed, thereby claiming forever the side he wanted to sleep on. But marriage wasn't going to be the simple thing we'd planned. In our commitment, we were one, but in personality, we were two different natures. We would have to work at blending his Irish fire and determination with my independence and stubbornness. God alone knew how we'd need those qualities in the future when our weaknesses became our strengths. Besides, we were a good balance once we'd learned to understand each other. Fortunately, we didn't enter marriage with the idea of changing each other. The Salvation's Army belief that women and men were equal in ministry encouraged what I believe should be in marriage, a sharing of responsibility and share what we did. He preached one service and me in the other. The main difference for me between being a single officer and married was that now I did all the housework and the cooking. Frank pressed his uniforms. You might get double creases in the trousers, he told me. We learned to laugh together at incidences like the old lady who stole the cates in her umbrella and the one who collected hymn books from all the churches. God's funny people, Frank called them, but there was no laughter the night three youths knocked on our door looking for accommodation. We've been on a cycling tour, but the weather has been so bad we've given up and we want to take the train home to Dunedin. We've run out of money. Can you help us with accommodation and train fares? I figured they looked decent enough. Well, I guess you can camp in the garden shed for the night. They certainly were not getting in the house. 
And yes, we can give you enough money for that train journey. At least I hope we could. That depended on my brand new husband. When Frank knew what I'd done, his eyes flashed fire. You shouldn't have done that. You don't know who they are. Mistake number one. I felt like pushing the table against the door in case they crept in during the night. Next morning, they washed under the garden tap, but we brought them in for breakfast, gave the money they needed, and forgot about them until we received the money back with a letter of thanks for our kindness. What kindness? Letting them sleep in the shed and wash in cold water? I felt a smug look across my face. Perhaps I was the best judge of character after all, but wisdom said don't comment, so I didn't. I was learning fast. It seemed that Frank relied heavily on me in those days of ministry. It wasn't difficult to take the lead in light of these inadequacies. I had to manage the financial affairs when he was sick, when he was content to let me continue. In fact, it still continues in spite of theories put forward by some marriage counsellors that a woman handling money will bring disaster in a marriage. It's never been a problem in our relationship. Sometimes I've been reluctant to spend money on myself because of my responsibility, but that was what I chose. Surely there is no fixed rule. Rather, two mature people working a system which suits them best. Two babies made it impossible to share the ministry we had been doing. My support came more in the background except on occasions such as in one spring flower service when Frank fainted as he was about to preach. Two men took him out and I picked up his Bible, turning to the text I knew he'd chosen for his sermon. Consider the lilies of the field. If he had left his notes, it would have been useful. The Holy Spirit was adequate, but why didn't the deaf man take his hearing aid out when I preached? How I thank God for that army's requirement that officers' wives must also go through Bible college training. We've discovered so many ministers' wives feel inadequate to meet the challenges of ministry, but not me. Experience made all the difference. Frank learned early to be wary of possible compromising situations. He had been delivering War Chris, the Salvation Army's publication. I'll not go to Mrs. Berry's again, he told me. You can go in the future. I sensed his agitation. That woman tried to seduce me. Surely not, Frank. She wouldn't do that. She did, and I'm not going back. It became my lot to take the paper to her. We remembered an officer who had been accused of committing adultery with a woman he had driven home in his car. It was his word against hers. The Salvation Army had no choice but to remove him from the office. His innocence was established five years later when the woman confessed as she lay dying that she had lied about the whole episode. Five wasted years of pew sitting. Of course the army reinstated him, but Frank became cautious in his dealings with women. He didn't want to lose any years. Often he asked his secretary to be present during counselling sessions or he'd leave the door of his office open. Women were not welcome in his car if he was alone. Beware of compromising situations, he warns, aspirations to the ministry. One false move and your credibility can be lost. Oh my gosh, this is hilarious. I've never doubted Frank's fidelity nor have had any reason to be jealous. You have a lovely husband, one of our old ladies often told me. I agreed. I also developed a sixth sense about men. It was difficult to reconcile the behaviour of, of some professing to love God but denying the standards of the Bible. In all his travelling, when Frank experienced tremendous loneliness, he'd write a letter home. A mutual trust developed which had never been warned. 
But Christians are human beings, sometimes extremely unreasonable. Would we ever learn to live with congregations who placed impractical demands on our time? There were women's meetings, missionary meetings, visitation and a home to keep. It seemed I could go a week with everything neat and in order, but if one morning the dishes were still in the sink at 10am, someone would always call. My own skills and gifts were lost in a quagmire of congregational expectations. I struggled to keep my head above the mire, especially following our Pentecostal experience. Those Pentecostals expected me to flow with spiritual gifts and once rejoiced that I had brought a prophetic message when all I had done was read two verses from Isaiah. <laughs> if Frank was caught reading, he was lazy. If the children said a word in church, they were undisciplined. I prickled all over. Now, now, cool down. What, what they say doesn't matter. Frank was right. I admired his self-control. Then I decided I wasn't answerable to the congregation, but to Frank and to God nor was he answerable to them. He once told a difficult deacon that neither he nor the church employed us. God did. There were other pressures in the assemblies of God. Now I was expected to prepare the communion and attend the baptismal gowns. It took us a long time to realise that some of other ladies in the congregation would love to share the duties long considered the responsibility of the pastor's wife, and in doing so they developed their own gifts. Frank's ministry developed so fast that I found it difficult to keep up with him, but I figured if I cooked him good meals and kept his shirts ironed, I'd be doing just fine. Thanks, dear, that was a good meal, he'd often say after dinner. But then, unlike some pastors we knew, he was always home on time to eat it. My respect for this fiery half-Irishman of mine grew as his ministry developed under the good hand of God. I'd listen to him counselling and wonder where he'd found the wisdom he was sharing until I remembered God had said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask God, and God will give all to men liberally, and it shall be given to him. James 1 verse 5. Not only did he know how to handle people in this congregation, but also his dragging behind wife once we learned not to argue. A pity, I loved an argument, but then I could turn it into a full-scale war where, as Frank was a peaceful man. The odd thing was that we really felt the same about the topic in question. We simply came at it at different angles. Besides, arguing didn't advance the ministry and I knew I must let nothing damage that. I have never understood why he'd dodge a pothole in the road by swinging the car wide toward oncoming traffic while I crept closer to the curb. Mind you, I may not be much of a driver. For if Frank was travelling in the car with me, I never got my hands on the wheel. Secretly, I suspect that he had something against women drivers. If a motorist wouldn't let him change lanes, he'd say, I'll bet it's a woman driver. I feel so smug if it happens to be a man, but one day I went too far. We were driving across Sydney's Harbour's Bridge on our way to the office when one woman driver attempted to make a dangerous manoeuvre to get in front of us. I knew it was dangerous, but I did not approve of the way Frank slowed down in protest. I put my hand on his knee as I quoted last Sunday's text. Blessed other meek, he exploded. Mind your own business. I burst into tears. Let me out of the car, I'll walk. This would have been difficult seeing there were three lanes of fast-moving cars between me and the footpath. The silence was ominous. Suddenly, the space between us seemed to have stretched to three feet. When we finally drove into a quiet street, he pulled to the curb, took me in his arms, kissed me and said, I'm sorry. Anyone would have thought that I'd known better than to preach at a man after living with him for 37 years. 
The story made a great illustration for future sermons. Mind you, I often tell myself mentioned in sermons. My wife is one of a million. To look at her, you'd think she's one in a ruffle. He has often said when in full fight preaching. Suddenly, every head in the congregation turns in my direction to see my reaction as they laugh uproariously. I smile sweetly, looking straight to the pulpit. Again, he'll say, you know that he that getteth a wife getteth a good thing, with emphasis on thing. Do you ever get embarrassed when Frank talks about you like that, people ask? No, why would I? I know his heart and his love for the dramatic. Well, perhaps I did a little at first. Now I say that if he didn't have me, he wouldn't have any illustrations. Mind you, it is amazing what can creep into sermons. You people who eat white sugar, it's the white death. If he measures into a cup the amount of water you put in your tea and sprinkle on your food in one day, you'll be amazed how much you use. I saw a young man give up sugar altogether after Frank did that to him. The cup was three quarters full. That's beside what you cook in food and natural sugars you eat, he pointed out. I've often wondered what the doctors in the congregation think of these impromptu health talks and what does it have to do with the gospel. You can serve God better with a strong body. Anyway, who wants to be sick? Sick people die and I don't want to go to heaven yet. There's too much to be done. So one shelf of the kitchen cupboard groans under the weight of the bottles of vitamin capsules and garlic tablets. Doctors' objections are dismissed as a matter of course. I took to reading labels when grocery shopping, learnt to cook without capsicums, mushrooms and tomatoes and to eat chocolate secretly. Whose God is, is their belly and whose end is destruction, Frank would quote again and again. Are you difficult to live with? He asked me quite unexpectedly one day when he was reading a book on health. I don't know, am I? You had better answer that one. You live with me, I parried. I'm not committing myself, but if you are, you might need to increase your intake of calcium. I let the matter drop, but sermons are much are more than health talks. Unless they resulted in decisions for Christ, Frank would come home from church, low in spirit and weary in body. It wasn't a very good day today. Only one answered the call for people to come to Jesus. How can you measure what was achieved, I asked. Time often revealed that much was accomplished in someone's life in such meetings. The problem was mainly physical exhaustion. I guess it's like Jesus when he felt virtue go out of him, Frank often says. I can never understand why people come for prayer when the meeting's finished and I'm exhausted. They want their own private altar call, I think. Nevertheless, there are some occasions when he asks the deacons to bring someone to his office where he can minister to them while I pace up and down almost asleep on my feet. I'll never marry a pastor again, I mutter. It must be wonderful living with a lovely man, a woman said. She was judging the preacher who jumps up and down on the platform, stalks up the aisle, falls on his knees to illustrate a point, and waggles his left leg in an action others try to imitate but can't. Maybe she had one of those dampened by Frank's drinking water flung across the congregation in the theseum of a high point. Once the people thought it was the ladder rain falling. He's not like that at home, I assured her. He's is a quiet person, really. Her look suggested I was lying. Why do people put pastors on pedestals? I live with him, I should know. She might have thought differently had she known his attitude to my snoring. It was 2am when his patient failed. A sharp poke in the ribs and I was wide awake. Stop that snoring, I haven't had any sleep, he grumbled. Lovely man, indeed, I muttered angrily as I grabbed a spare blanket and marched into the lounge to finish the night in peace. Morning brought sanity and forgiveness. God did say, forget those things which are behind. We did. Until the next time I snored, I still take his cup of tea to him before he climbs out of bed. 
None of these things are major disasters. Instead, they give life a touch of humour. That is, if our humour is operating and it, it keeps us from getting too much into the heavenlies. No, the drama usually occurred in the counselling room. Although we share some, most things, Frank never breaks confidences by telling me what people say in private. I never expect him to. That was why I was surprised the night he sank into an easy chair, a troubled look on his face. I've had a horrible experience today. I've got to get it off my chest, he told me. He had my full attention. What happened? A young fellow who just became a Christian felt he needed to confess to a terrible incident in his life before he could find peace. He felt God couldn't forgive him. Sure, you want to tell me about it? I didn't want Frank to tell me something he would regret. (sighs) Yes, I do. For days, this man watched a 12-year-old boy walking walking along a track between his home and the nearby shops. One evening, apparently driven by a terrible passion, he violently assaulted the boy, leaving him so shocked by the experience he lay numb and speechless as his attacker walked by. I can't get that 12-year-old out of my mind. Oh, my gosh. Words were useless. I could only hold him tight, respecting as I did his confidence and the fact he'd never mentioned names. God would have to handle this one. Pain which touches one touches the other, as did our grief when we suffered the loss of the parents who had provided secure homes and heaps of love. Frank's mother died while we drove to her bedside. The agony of loss tore at Frank's heart as he knelt by the bed on which her body lay. Great sobs shook him. My thoughts ran to our wedding day. Hazel, remember Frank will always be my son, that little lady reminded me. Yes, mum, I'll remember, I assured her. I felt this kind of sorrow could not be relieved by tears. I let him cry as I stood with my hand on his shoulder. I didn't want him to be like some who stand dry-eyed at a graveside without having wept in private. Nor did I want the pressure of well-meaning Christians who would say people were brave because they didn't cry. We did cry four times as our parents went into the presence of God. Suddenly we realised we were the older generation. There was strength and comfort in each other's love. No cliches with someone telling us all things work together for good. We knew that without being told. Hadn't that scripture kept us trusting God through pain, we found almost impossible to bear. Fortunately, most of our congregation gave us the support we needed, especially in the days of Frank's extended travelling. These long separations were not easily handled. Letters were inadequate when he longed for adult conversation. Sometimes they didn't even arrive. The children missed Daddy. I found it wasn't easy being mother and father to five lively youngsters and then having to remember I was only mother when he came home. But following Daddy's movements on the world map on the wall helped. This way, I hoped the children would feel part of the ministry as we prayed for Daddy and that our sacrifice was an offering to God. 20 years down the road, Frank wonders if he should have travelled so much when the children were small. He was constantly thinking of their spiritual warfare and writing letters of concern. Dearest Hazel and the kids, I really love it here in Fiji. The hunger in their hearts of the people everywhere is terrific. Our church must ever be burdened for unreached souls. If they haven't got the vision yet, then we must see they get it. I could not wish nor pray for more than what we as a family from Maureen down to Judith and we too could become a great soul winning team for Jesus. This will be if we put our hearts and minds to the task. Another time he wrote from overseas, he mentioned especially two boys now high school age. I have had Brian and Graham very much on my heart the last few days. I've been especially praying that God will help them to stand for Christ 
at school, especially against all the filthy stories and evil talk by boys whose minds are cesspools of filth. There is a great secret to life if you know how to keep your mind off evil things. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee in is a precious Bible promise. God bless you boys. I have faith in you and believe you'll follow Jesus and not the ungodly crowd going to hell. How do you cope with Frank's absences, folks ask? Well, by developing my own interests and keeping involved in my ministry, is my reply. Any other reaction is a waste of time. The only mouth I fretted over was his absence. It was the one that he spent at Oral Roberts Minister Seminar in Tulsa, Oklahoma. That time I allowed anger to eat into me because wives were not included. Wives ought to be included, I said. I told everyone who would listen. Few did. Come on, women, get yourself together. You're not there, so make the most of being at home. I knew I could choose to be miserable or I could choose to be happy. Being happy seemed the the most sensible. I never allowed myself to get angry like that again. My problem was to keep independence in its proper place. Is your wife coming? Pastors would ask them when Frank accepted an invitation to preach. Will they pay my fare? I'd ask. Maintaining if they really wanted me, they would do that. We don't have the money to pay for her, they said. Neither do we. End of conversation as we were. I wish you were coming, Frank would say, and I wish... I was, if only to combat the overwhelming loneliness Frank feels when away from home. Ours is a happy marriage. We're never together to fight. I'd joke with a trace of cynicism. There was always someone else besides the family at the airport to meet him, sometimes a crowd of others. Why do they all need to come? Don't they realise we want to be alone? They also pleased to see me back, was all he would say. I stopped objecting when I realised how much it meant to Frank to know his people cared. Not only did people come to the airport, but the telephone would butt in on our privacy. Sometimes the telephone seemed to govern our lives, intruding into family life and interrupting meals. Let it ring, I'd say. No, you never know who's on the other end. It might be an emergency. He was right, of course. Middle of the night calls were always the worst. To be wakened of a sound sleep at 2.30am never helped me be my best, and Frank never heard the ringing. I learned to sift calls after Doug rang at 2am. Pastor, I'm just ringing. To tell you that the prophecy you prophesied four years ago has come to pass. What did I prophesy? You said that if I didn't give up on alcohol, I'd lose my wife and my business. Well, I have. And you rang at 2am to tell me that? Well, if don't hang up, I'll prophesy again. Frank was annoyed. He would have trouble going back to sleep. I learned to distinguish calls. How long have you had the problem, I'd ask. Six months. Then it will keep till morning. Thanks, dear, a sleepy voice would mutter. But I knew the anguish in Bill's voice as he pleaded for Frank to rescue him from the forces driving him to suicide. Here, Frank, you better take this call. Where are you, Bill? Don't do anything silly. I'll be there as soon as I can. Frank climbed out of bed without a murmur. Any life and death occasion was a legitimate interruption to sleep. As soon as he left to rescue Bill, I made up the bed ready for their return. I knew that Bill would spend the rest of the night with us, perhaps more than that. Times like this, the rule of keeping problems out of the house were broken. Then there was the night Brian Blake rang. It was another 2am call. I recognised his voice as soon as he spoke. What does he want this time? I lay back on my pillow as he rambled on with his promises to give a church a million dollars as soon as his latest scheme paid off. He's off on another delusion, I concluded. Let him ramble, the receiver lying on the pillow beside my ear. Frank said he kept telling me to hang up. I didn't hear him. The next I knew it was 4am, Brian was in the middle of saying he must hang up now. Thanks for listening, Mrs Houston. I mumbled something about it being just fine as the phone clicked off. 
You should have hung up, Frank said once more. I couldn't. I've been asleep for two hours and didn't hear a thing. Next I Brian sent me a large box of chocolates and a card of thanks. Dear Lord, don't let him ever find out I didn't hear a word. While the children collected lame animals, Frank collected lame people, wounded in spirit and starved of love and understanding. I think Lester is having a nervous breakdown. Can't we have him stay a few days? Do we really have to have him stay in the house? I'll have to put a mattress on the floor. I wasn't willing for the inconvenience. Frank's positive attitude sometimes irked me, but anything was better than the negativity of this boy. It took four days of concentrated ministry before he could see the love and the grace of God toward the repentant soul. Replace your negative thoughts with positive ones, Frank would tell him. That discipline was too difficult for Lester to maintain. He dropped out of church. Lord, you'll have to deal with him. I've done all I know. Frank would tell me that you can't help people who won't help themselves. Neither could he dismiss them from his mind. I knew that he was thinking. After 39 years of marriage, we knew each other's thoughts. There is more than a little balding round the temples now. In fact, Brian is getting quite thin on top. Once, years before, he decided a hairpiece would cover the thinning pouch. How it was possible he could wear it for a week and I'd not notice, a hairpiece proved a nuisance. A better way would be to ask the Lord to do something about it. Placing his hand on his head, he shouted, Lord, this has gone far enough. It was another 15 years before I'd noticed it had receded further and silver lines tinted the brown. He was also finding greater difficulty combing his hair over that patch on top. One evening, we sat quietly, him reading, me writing. I popped a question to him. Frank, how many books have you read on marriage? None, perhaps. I did read one. Why? Well, I never read anything. Do you think this is why we have a successful marriage? We never knew ahead of time that problems could arise as we never anticipated so many. Maybe, he grunted as he went back to his book. Can any marriage be perfect? But I was glad he was there.